Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Levesay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Grey History, Episode 19, A Holy War Begins. If the last episode was dedicated to ceremonies of revolutionary harmony, well, then this episode will be dedicated to how that revolutionary harmony was shot to pieces. In seeking to address both the bankruptcy and a counter-revolutionary threat, the Assembly will pick a fight with the Catholic Church. Unfortunately for the revolutionaries, things didn't quite go to plan. Welcome to Grey History. Episode 19, A Holy War Begins. Debt. Debt is a remarkably stubborn thing. In my experience, once you have debt, it's rather difficult to do anything other than pay it off. Whether it's credit card debt, student loans, the Laura surprise, or just blockbuster late fees because you enjoyed Shrek for one too many days, debt just doesn't seem to go away. Now, if you two have had a similar experience with debt, and thus have been asking yourself, what about the big bad bankruptcy? Well, don't worry. It is indeed time to discuss the financial crisis that started this whole fiasco. Unfortunately for the French people, and for the revolution itself, the remedies selected by the deputies to address this crisis had some serious unintended consequences. Beginning with the fall of the Bastille and the subsequent great fear in the provinces, a whole series of events had made it impossible for the Assembly to focus exclusively on the bankruptcy. A range of burning problems, both literally and figuratively, faced the Assembly throughout the summer of 1789 and these needed to be addressed before the bankruptcy could be resolved. Towards the end of September 1789, having dealt with revolts, privileges and key constitutional debates, the deputies were readying themselves to tackle the issue of the bankruptcy. And not a moment too soon. Wonderboy Jacques Necker was fast losing his shine. The numerical magician was running out of magic to keep the country afloat. Something needed to be done, and it needed to be done quickly. Now, if you ever find yourself in a government on the brink of financial catastrophe, there's a few ways to keep your country afloat. Option number one, raise taxes. Option number two, cut expenditure. Option number three, take things that don't belong to you. Option number one, raise taxes, appears sensible. But in 1789, the idea was plagued by impracticalities. The countryside seemed to be permanently simmering, always on the verge of descending back into the anarchy witnessed during the Great Fear. Likewise, the mood in the cities wasn't exactly ideal for tax increases either. Sky-high bread prices and economic hardship had fueled the violent revolt of the October days, so imagine adding tax increases into the mix. While the deputies had abolished the taxation exemptions historically enjoyed by the nobility, the additional taxes raised were woefully inadequate to address the budget deficit. Thus, option one wasn't really an option. That takes us to option number two, cutting expenditure. As you can imagine, this is far easier said than done. Look how difficult it has been for so many countries to cut their budget deficits since the global financial crisis of 2008. Few governments have succeeded, and they weren't trying to contain a revolution at the same time. The fact of the matter is that there wasn't much the deputies could cut that would actually have made a difference. The servicing of debt and expenses relating to the armed forces made up the vast majority of the government's expenditure. The assembly couldn't reduce the former, 
and in times of unrest could hardly reduce the latter. Thus, the deputies found themselves in the unenviable position where they could neither raise taxes nor cut expenditure. This left them with option number three, taking things that didn't belong to them. On October the 10th, four days after the market women dragged King Louis to Paris, a deputy representing the clergy of Autun presented to the National Assembly a bold and audacious plan to avoid financial catastrophe. The deputy was Charles Maurice de Talleyrand, the Bishop of Autun. A student of the Enlightenment, the 35-year-old bishop was a cynical, ambitious political manoeuvrer who, in the eyes of some, would manage to betray the church, the revolution, the directory, Napoleon, and the restored Bourbon monarchy all in one lifetime. I mean, at what point in time does it just become impressive? A strong believer that the executive branch of government should be empowered to prevent the legislature from becoming too dominant, the bishop mingled alongside the centrist faction of the assembly and was a member of the Society of 1789. Despite being a bishop, however, Talleyrand was an atheist and his friends jokingly referred to him as the bishop because unless someone told you, you would never have known. Despite associating with the Society of 1789, the policy proposal that the bishop was crafting to address the bankruptcy was by no means centrist in nature. Talleyrand had a rather dramatic and divisive plan in mind. It was on October the 10th that the bishop began to create a history for himself that resulted in his name becoming a byword for cynical and crafty diplomacy. Having defended the church's rights so vigorously earlier in his career, the bishop of Autun was about to become the bishop of blasphemy. What did the bishop propose, you ask? Well, Talleyrand, ever skillful with money, had found a way to pursue option number three of the avoiding bankruptcy playbook. He would take someone else's stuff. And somewhat paradoxically, he would take someone else's stuff by taking his own. Violating the property rights enshrined in the Declaration of the Rights of Man, the bishop proposed nationalising church land. Proclaiming that great dangers demanded drastic remedies, he called for the confiscation of large amounts of church property, envisioning that the seized assets could be either sold off to settle debts or used as collateral for new loans. In short, he proposed to place church land at the disposal of the nation. Now, to go all the way back to episode 1, you may remember that despite comprising 0.5% of the population, the church owned 10% of French land. Over the centuries, thousands of people had donated property to the church. Donations ranged from farms and estates to mills and urban properties. What Talleyrand was proposing was that these assets be seized and sold in order to finance the revolution and address the bankruptcy. Making the proposal even more heretical, the Minister of Satan, as many in the church now viewed Talleyrand, rejected any suggestion that the church should be compensated for its loss. Furthermore, Talleyrand denied the accusation that the seizure of this property violated the property rights enshrined in the Declaration of the Rights of Man. According to Talleyrand and his supporters, there was a distinction between property belonging to individuals and property belonging to institutions particularly institutions that existed to undertake social functions on behalf of the nation. It was argued that the assets of the church were unique because they had been donated for social purposes. These purposes included things like education, charity programs, poor relief, maintenance of hospitals and the administration of public worship. As the property of the church was used for financing social functions and had been donated by the faithful for the church to undertake these social functions, The contested property wasn't so much owned by the Catholic Church as much as it was held in trust by the Church for the benefit of society. The Church was not the owner of these assets, but rather the custodian or the administrator of them. It was argued that the nation, then, in its hour of need, could reclaim these assets within this trust, so long as it took on the associated responsibilities. In other words, provided the state took over education, charity programs, public worship, etc., the state could seize the assets which were supposedly used for the public good. Accordingly, to the revolutionaries, centuries of devout Catholics had donated their wealth not to the church, but rather to the community, to the nation, 
It just so happened that it was the church that had been administering and overseeing these donations in a custodian-like role. Talleyrand remarked, I do not think that it is necessary to discuss, at any length, the question of church property. It appears to me quite evident that the clergy are not proprietors like other proprietors, because the property which they enjoy, and of which they cannot dispose, has been given to them, not for their personal benefit, but for the performance of their functions. Talleyrand and his supporters were arguing that there was an important distinction between the property rights of an individual and the property rights of a public institution. The church was a fictional and moral body, an organisation that existed for the social good and only with the consent of the state. The parishioner who attended that church was a different matter, however. That individual existed not only without the consent of the state, but also, theoretically, comprised the state itself. Thus, it was argued that property rights transformed as a plot of land passed from a physical person to a theoretical institution, an institution that only existed because the state permitted it. As a result, the donations of the faithful could be, and should be, reclaimed for the good of the nation. Unsurprisingly, the conservative faction within the assembly rose in vehement opposition. Abbe Marie denounced the plan as a complete violation of property rights, and one that created a dangerous precedent for future financial crises. But property is sacred, both for us and for you. Our property is a guarantee of yours. Today, it is we who are assailed. But do not deceive yourselves. If we are stripped, you will be stripped in turn. Your own immorality will be turned against you and the first disaster to overtake the public finances will involve and devour up your own possessions. If the nation has the right to seek in the origins of society a reason for despoiling us of our property, this new metaphysical principle will lead directly to all manner of claims for the common ownership of land. The people will take advantage of the existing chaos to obtain a share of property that even the most immemorial rights will not protect from invasion and they will exercise over you those very rights which you have exerted over us. Indeed, they will proclaim that they themselves are the nation, and are therefore bound by no law. A point well made by Abbe Marie. I don't generally like slippery slope arguments, because one moment you're debating smooth versus crunchy peanut butter, and the next minute someone's predicting the return of Stalinism. But Marie's arguments are powerful. Seize my property today with some abstract principles, and you expose yourself to being robbed in the future by those same principles. Unfortunately for the Conservatives, this sound argument did not win them the debate. Anticipating pushback from the clergy, Talleyrand had an ace up his sleeve. In confiscating church property, the state would also take up the duty of paying the salaries of the clergy. One key policy was that no parish priest would receive less than 1,200 livres a year, meaning that some priests would see a pay rise of more than 60%. For a minority of the common priests who had helped to kick-start this revolution by siding with the Third Estate at the Estates General, this was a tantalising prospect. And not tantalising from a selfish, I'm going to get a pay rise point of view. Many priests had long complained about inequality within the church the extravagancies of the bishops, the overlooked needs of the common clergy. Some members of the faith loathed the misuse of wealth within the church and perceived the opulence of the institution to be a corrupting force. To a minority of clerical deputies, becoming salaried employees of the state would help rid the church of the corruption, of the rot, of the disease of wealth, and thus saw the confiscation of church lands as not entirely evil. It was, in a sense, going to liberate the church from its earthly possessions, enabling the institution to focus on its true mission of spreading the word of God. A majority of the lower clergy rejected this logic, but enough clergymen thought this perspective had merit. Abbe Gregoire, one of the first priests to break with the first estate, to join the third during the estates general, certainly believed that the burden of property hampered the church's evangelical activities. 
other priests thought that the church could afford to make more sacrifices than the common people, and therefore argued that their forfeiture of land was better than new taxes on the poor. Whatever their point of view, Talleyrand, Mirabeau, and other revolutionaries were able to gain enough support from the lower clergy for their proposals to pass on the 2nd of November, 1789. The proposal passed 568 to 346, with 40 abstentions. As the high opposition vote illustrates, however, many clergymen, in fact the majority, remained unconvinced, including Abbe Siez. On their side were many members of the church outside of the assembly, including the Pope. Historian Francois Mignet summarises the fallout that follows. The clergy rose against this proposition. The discussion became very animated, and it was decided, in spite of their resistance, that they were not proprietors, but simple depositaries of the wealth that the piety of kings and the faithful had devoted to religion, and that the nation, on providing for the service of public worship, had a right to recall such property. The decree which placed it at its disposal was passed on the 2nd of November, 1789. From that moment, the hatred of the clergy to the revolution broke out. At the commencement of the States-General, it had been less intractable than the nobility, in order to preserve its riches. It now showed itself as opposed as they to the new regime, of which it became the most tenacious and ferocious foe. A tenacious and ferocious foe the Catholic Church would be. But we're still a few years away from one of the most violent, religious-inspired civil wars France would ever see. For now, many in the clergy licked their wounds, as many clergymen did not want to break with the revolution if it could be avoided. Unfortunately for these optimists, that break would not be avoided for long. Ah, spring. Nothing like the world progressing towards summer to inspire your own progress. That's what life's all about. In your career, relationships, and your finances. Let's talk about that last one. With the Chime Secured Credit Builder Visa Credit Card, it's easy to start building credit with everyday purchases and regular on-time payments with no annual fees or interest. And if your credit score grows, so could your opportunities for lower rates on loans, like for a car or home. Sounds like progress, right? With Chime Secure Credit Card, you can start improving your credit scores right away. Get started today at Chime.com build. That's Chime.com build. Chime. Feels like progress. The Chime Credit Bill Visa Credit Card is issued by Bancorp Bank NA or Stride Bank NA. Members of FDIC, out-of-network ATM withdrawal and OTC advance fees may apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to Chime.com slash disclosures for details. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. On the 5th of February, 1790, the Assembly voted to create a register for all the property belonging to the regular orders of the Church, and for all ecclesiastical benefices and pensions to be inventoried. On the 14th of May, the terms of sale were fixed and land flooded the market in June 1790, although sales had been occurring prior. The sheer volume of property and goods simultaneously hitting the market created a range of problems. Historian Christopher Hibbert notes that the revolutionaries were warned that selling so much property at once would result in a significant devaluation of land, as the market simply wouldn't be able to ingest the quantities being sold. The deputies, however, needed cash, and they needed it fast. To paraphrase Talleyrand, desperate times called for desperate measures, and so the Assembly pursued its fire sale agenda despite the devaluation problems it created. Another benefit of selling land as quickly as possible was that it tied more members of the Third Estate to the success of the revolution. Despite being economically inefficient, the deputies deliberately broke up larger plots of land into smaller lots so that more people could purchase the land. The logic behind this was that the greater number of people who owned church land, the greater number of people who would oppose the reversing of the Assembly's actions and support the revolution going forward. Historian Hippolyte Taine disdainfully recounts a scene in eastern France as land and goods alike were sold with speed. 
At Bessasson, three churches of eight, with their land and treasure, the funds of the chapter, all the money of the monastic churches, the sacred vessels, shrines, crosses, reliquaries, votive offerings, ivories, statues, pictures, tapestries, sacerdotal dresses and ornaments, plate, jewels and precious furniture, libraries, railings, bells, masterpieces of art and of piety, all are broken up and melted in the mint, or sold by auction for almost nothing. As scenes like this unfolded across the country, resentment from the clergy bubbled away. Those priests which resisted the assembly's thievery used their influential positions in the community to whip up resentment towards both the reforms and those implementing them. Denouncing the sale of church land as sacrilegious, the actions of the assembly were the sinister work of Protestants intent on attacking the one true faith. Priests threatened the purchases of church land with excommunication and implored the people to resist the assault on God's earthly bastion. This opposition did stir violent unrest in some parts of the country, particularly where tensions historically existed between local Protestant and Catholic communities. After further controversial reforms were implemented by the Assembly, the southern town of Nîmes was hit particularly hard with noteworthy unrest. Up to 300 pro-Catholic rioters were killed as the two religious faiths clashed in June 1790 further fueling speculation amongst the Catholic population that the Assembly's work was the bidding of sinister Protestant forces. Yet despite this supposed assault on the clergy, it is noteworthy that the nation as a whole failed to rise up and protect the ancient institution. The nation had defended the Parlements against the Crown in the summer of 1788, but it initially made no similar move to protect either the Parlements or the Church from the Assembly in 1790. The lack of a universal uproar across the nation does have me toying with a thought bubble, however. Let me paint to you an alternative scenario. Imagine the US government was bankrupt. Not that hard, given the current state of affairs. And then imagine Congress tried the same solution. Imagine that the government of the United States seized the property of all American churches in order to pay off government debt. I imagine the outcry, the resistance, the defiance would be astronomical. I just can't imagine some federal officials strolling into a Texas town, taking everything and patting the pastor on the back saying, don't worry, we'll pay you a salary. I am convinced that these officials would be shot, or at the very least shot at. So when I compare what I think would happen in the US today to France in 1790, The fact that this policy didn't stir up too much trouble probably indicates just how loathed the two privileged orders were and how the political illustrations and publications of the time had successfully depicted the church and the nobility as parasitic leeches. It also probably indicates just how favourable the revolutionary press was to the government's position, demonstrates how opposed the public was to any new taxes, and reflects the fact that not all members of the lower clergy resisted these reforms. While some regions would eventually rise in armed rebellion against the national government, it wasn't the nationalisation of church land which prompted this pro-church revolt. As historian Bertha Gardner puts it, The great body of the nation had its interests far too closely bound up with the revolution to be tempted into a crusade against it. The peasantry had no quarrel with ecclesiastical changes which affected neither eyes nor ears. Now, considering this policy of nationalisation begins a split with the church that will haunt the revolution, and considering the revolutionaries more or less make a mess of things by flooding the market with so much land at one time, people might question why the deputies did what they did. Historian Gaetano Salvamini presents one of the best defences of the nationalisation of church land. In short, what other choice did they have than to pursue option three, the taking of other people's stuff? It is true that out of so many millions of revolutionary currency, less than half went into the liquidation of debt. For the most part, it was employed into coping with daily expenses, 
and in making up for deficiency of taxation. It is easy to liken the actions of the National Assembly to those of a spendthrift, who, having sold his ancestral inheritance, pays off his most pressing debts and the interest on others, while he continues his extravagant way of life. Yet, in view of the profound social crisis into which France had been plunged after July 1789 through the stupidity of the privileged orders and the king, the assembly could not conduct itself in a different manner. The absolute monarchy, in a period of tranquility, had always administered affairs by piling up debts. It had avoided all financial reform and had, in fact, acted with criminal folly. The Assembly now found itself not only burdened with the difficulties inherited from absolutism, but obliged to administer the country in a period of crisis, in which the collection of taxes had ceased and all the people's resentment were unleashed against the old financial system. Not able to borrow more money, the Assembly did not want to declare a state of bankruptcy, and it had no wish to relinquish control of civil and military administration owing to lack of funds which would have brought the return of the old regime. It had no other means of maintaining its authority and concealing its own impotence than that of taking the capital it could find. According to historian Salvamini, what other choice did the deputies have? The monarchy and the aristocracy had failed to address the crisis for years, and now, left holding the bag, the assembly had to do something radical. To cut expenditure would have endangered the assembly's control over the military. To have increased taxes would have not only been impractical, but potentially disastrous, especially if it set off revolts across the nation. Historian Francois Mignet may claim that the seizing of church property made the Catholic Church the most tenacious and ferocious foe of the revolution. But if the other options were complete anarchy or the reinstallation of the old regime, then what actual choice was there? And it's here that I disagree with historian Francois Mignot. I'm not convinced that in and of itself, the confiscation of church property alone would have made the Catholic Church the most tenacious and ferocious foe of the revolution. If the National Assembly stopped there, was there not a possibility for peace? After all, a minority of the French church actually liked the idea. Some liked it believing it was purifying the church of earthly corruptions. Others liked it because it prevented new taxes which would burden the poor. No doubt many liked the improved living standards and the new salaries which would come with being a salaried employee of the state. Talleyrand may have been an atheist, but he wasn't an anti-clerical one. He designed the reforms specifically in such a way to try to get the majority of the clergy on board. He might have failed in that regard, but that wasn't his intention. Had the National Assembly stopped here? Had they stopped just at the nationalisation of church land? Could this most tenacious and ferocious foe have been avoided? I think it's possible. If the Assembly had stopped there. But they didn't stop there. And in fact, you can very much make the case that stopping there was itself impossible. According to historian Jonathan Israel, an ideological war with the church was inevitable. The papacy and ecclesiastical hierarchy repudiated the revolution's core values altogether. Outright conflict between revolution and church was wholly certain from the outset. Standing as an affront to everything the revolutionaries held dear, Israel reasons that conflict with the church was guaranteed. Accordingly, my thought bubble of peace between Paris and Rome after the confiscation of church land was never actually a possibility, because that was just the opening shot in an inevitable holy war. His argument does have merit. The revolutionaries had torn strips off the nobility, then the monarchy, why not the papacy as well? Why not subordinate and reform the last institution of the old regime that could challenge the authority of the assembly? Furthermore, could the assembly afford not to subordinate the church? Could they really leave this wealthy and powerful bastion of the old regime untouched? Could they really permit this state within a state? Historian Jonathan Israel says no. No part of French society enjoyed greater autonomy before 1789 
commented Tocqueville later, or more special privileges than the church. No other slice of society, apart from the army and navy, so completely reflected the social hierarchy. Practically all archbishops and bishops were aristocrats. Hence, it was central to the leading revolutionary's vision of the revolution and democracy that the church should be deprived of its autonomy, immunities, independent resources, privileged status, and solidary aristocratic leadership. Nor was this all. There was also a more directly political aspect. A haven of privilege, immunities, and autonomy, the church had for decades combated la philosophie moderne and now offered France's elites their best hope of mobilising substantial backing among the common people for the ancien regime and conservatism in their fight against equality and democracy. In effect, the church's authority, doctrines, and preaching were conservatism's most formidable weapon against the revolution. According to Israel, peace was never an option. The National Assembly could not and would not allow the church to maintain its power, its authority, its influence, its autonomy. Already beset by so many rivals for power, the last thing the revolutionaries needed was the Catholic Church acting as the rallying point for conservatism and the old regime. To secure the success of the new regime, historian Francois Mignet agrees with historian Jonathan Israel that an assault on the church was inevitable. It was important not to leave an independent body, and especially an ancient body, any longer in the state, for in a time of revolution, everything ancient is hostile. The clergy, by its formidable hierarchy and its opulence, a stranger to the new changes, would have remained as a republic in the kingdom. Its form belonged to another system, when there was no state, but only bodies, each order had provided for its own regulation and existence. The clergy had its decretals, the nobility its law of fiefs, the people its corporations. Everything was independent because everything was private. But now that functions were becoming public, it was necessary to make a magistracy of the priesthood as they had made one of royalty. And, in order to make them dependent on the state, it was essential that they should be paid by it, and to resume from the monarch his domains, from the clergy its property, by bestowing on each of them suitable endowments. So, there is a historical school of thought that believes conflict between the revolution and the church was unavoidable. There is a belief that a broad coalition within the assembly, a coalition of centrists and leftists, Protestants and Catholic reformers, was always going to try to subordinate the church to the state. Thus, as we start to unpack the controversial religious reforms of 1790, as the assembly implements policies which I think justify the church becoming the revolution's most tenacious and ferocious foe, keep this in mind. According to some historians, the revolutionaries weren't so much picking a fight they didn't have to have, as much as they were starting a fight that was always just a matter of time. Napoleon Bonaparte rose from obscurity to become the most powerful and significant figure in modern history. Over 200 years after his death, people are still debating his legacy. He was a man of contradictions, a tyrant and a reformer, a liberator and an oppressor, a revolutionary and a reactionary. His biography reads like a novel, and his influence is almost beyond measure. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast, and every month I delve into the turbulent life and times of one of the greatest characters in history, and explore the world that shaped him in all its glory and tragedy. It's a story of great battles and campaigns, political intrigue, and massive social and economic change, but it's also a story about people populated with remarkable characters. I hope you'll join me as I examine this fascinating era of history. Find The Age of Napoleon wherever you get your podcasts. Having won the debate on the nationalisation of church lands, the Assembly began to escalate its ecclesiastical reforms shortly thereafter. On the 17th of December 1789, Jean-Baptiste Trailard proposed to the Assembly that the majority of the monasteries in France should be forcibly closed. Now that the clergy were paid for by the state, 
Trela argued that those monks and nuns who locked themselves away from society and served no social function should not be allowed to live at the expense of the nation. The assembly agreed, and on the 13th of February 1790, proclaimed that all monastic orders not devoted to charitable work, nursing or education would be abolished. Thousands of nuns and monks were absolved of their vows, whether or not they wanted to be. To the surprise of the deputies, many newly liberated souls failed to embrace their newfound freedom. A majority of monks and nuns tried to remain in voluntary religious communities, and it was only over time and with adequate pressure that these religious recluses dispersed. While the actions of the legislature did not create significant outrage in the streets, it did create unease amongst many clerical deputies within the assembly. The suppression of the monasteries was an undeniable case of the state meddling in the affairs of the church. In fact, it was a case of the state dictating the affairs of the church. Unfortunately for these nervous and agitated deputies, this was just the tip of the heretical iceberg. On the 29th of May 1790, the Assembly's Ecclesiastical Committee revealed their declaration of war against the church. It was called the Civil Constitution of the Clergy, and there was nothing civil about it. The document was designed to subordinate the church to the state, to curb its autonomy completely, to end the dominance of the aristocracy and its leadership, and to confine its role in society to a few key responsibilities. This assault on the church could be broken down into four key pillars. The first two pillars were reforms to the episcopate and to the parish system. The third was the introduction of elections, and the fourth was the curtailment of papal authority. If papacy and ecclesiastical hierarchy repudiated the revolution's core values, as historian Jonathan Israel suggests, well then this was the revolutionaries' answer to their papal problem. The reforms of the episcopate, or reforms regarding the bishops and their ecclesiastical districts, were dramatic. As discussed in episode 17, the Assembly had previously redrawn the administrative system of France into 83 departments. In the Assembly's new religious reforms, the legislature remoulded the boundaries of the French bishoprics to align with these new jurisdictions. Thus, the number of French bishops fell instantly from 135 to 83. I mean, how's that for a move on the geopolitical chessboard? Rook to e6 kills not one, not two, but 53 bishops. 40% gone, just like that. And you know what the best part is? I'm only a couple of sentences into explaining this declaration of war. Those bishops who remained enjoyed a dramatic salary cut, just to add salt to the wound. Now considered employees of the state, bishops received either 20,000 livres or 12,000 livres a year, depending on the population of the town they resided in. As a reference point, the Archbishop of Strasbourg had a pre-revolutionary income of 450,000 livres. So we're talking a reasonable pay cut here. Furthermore, the Archbishop rank was completely done away with. The reforms to the parish system were also immense. Along with dioceses that were eliminated, hundreds of parishes were abolished as they too were standardised across the country. Some areas were hit particularly hard. Paris lost less than one-third of its parishes, but Osea was left with only a third of their original twelve. Furthermore, the functions of the church would be limited severely. Non-core functions were outright abolished. Canons, choir schools, cathedral chapters and other auxiliary functions joined the monastic orders in the dustbin of history. These changes to the administration and functions of the church were only part of the reforms, however. In addition to these, well, controversial measures, the power within the hierarchy of the church was fundamentally altered. By the Assembly's decree, the Pope lost his authority over the churches of the nation. In the New World Order, the Catholic Church was to be French, not Roman. Furthermore, in the French Church, the people would have the power. Overturning the traditional top-down hierarchy of the Roman Catholic Church, going forward, bishops and priests were to be elected by the public. Power to the people. Now, 
if I was to itemise all the various grievances that the civil constitution of the clergy created, we would be here for hours and you would get a sneak peek of purgatory. So, instead, I will focus on two key grievances. Noteworthy grievance number one concerns elections. The deputies were proposing department-wide elections for bishops and local elections for parish priests. Furthermore, to eliminate the church's aristocratic upper crust, only those who had been a common priest for 15 years could run for the position of bishop. These were controversial reforms, but what made them outright heretical was the fact that the electorate was not restricted to the good-standing Catholic faithful. The electorate was comprised of any and all active citizens. What this meant was that filthy, no-good Protestants could participate in elections for the Catholic Church. Worse still, Jews could participate in elections for the Catholic Church. Understandably, giving the people who killed Jesus the right to vote on matters relating to the worshipping of Jesus was considered, um, not particularly kosher. This policy of all active citizens being able to participate in elections enraged the Catholic faithful. The deputies defended the measure on the grounds that the clergy were now public servants, and just as the public got to vote for judges and government officials, so too did they have a right to vote for the clergy. Needless to say, this counter-argument was rejected completely. Noteworthy grievance number two regarded the authority and position of the Pope. The new French church would be completely independent of the pontiff. The revolutionaries were essentially demoting the Pope from the head of the Catholic Church to the Bishop of Rome, or more accurately, to the rank of some foreign and ignorable aristocrat. To borrow a line from Theodon of Rohan, the Assembly's message to the Pope was simple. You have no power here. The problem with this position, as those who get the reference know, was that the Pope did have power here. Emasculating the Pope went against the teachings and traditions of the Church, and it conflicted with the conscience of the faithful. It's because of this conflict that historian Charles Mallet lampoons the Assembly for the actions and policies it pursued. Far from excusing the revolutionaries' behaviour on the grounds that conflict between Church and State was inevitable, historian Mallet describes the measures regarding papal authority as needlessly provocative condemns the intrusion on freedom of religion, and laments the damage caused as a result. But the methods of the assembly aggravated the violence of the change. They had the power, and probably the right, to disestablish and to disendow the old church. But they had neither the right nor the power to force men's consciences to accept their substitute for it, whether they would or not. Moreover, they did not understand that the new constitution of the clergy was absolutely repugnant to the spirit of Roman Catholicism and involved ideas which that spirit could not possibly accept. They believed that all authority and government ought to begin with the people, to come from below, and in accordance with that view, they framed the new system of their church. But if there was one principle which the Roman church held dear, and which it had clung to even more closely than to its dogmas, ever since it established its ascendancy in Europe. It was the principle that all authority in the Church proceeded from above. To every faithful Catholic, the Pope held a spiritual power derived from heaven. Without the Pope's consent, no share of that spiritual power could pass to bishop or to priest, and without such sanctions and authority from above, no man whatever civil force might lie behind him, could administer with God's approval the services and sacraments of the church. Beliefs of that kind, founded on conscience and fixed in immemorial habit, could not be uprooted by any decrees. Even had the assembly secured the Pope's consent, it seems doubtful whether its schemes would have been finally accepted in the country. Instead of that, it took no steps to conciliate the papacy but ostentatiously held itself aloof from Rome, and by various provocative measures showed its intention to set the Pope's authority at defiance. The consequences were immediate and disastrous. Historian Charles Mallet underscores why the introduction of the civil constitution of the clergy was never going to be easy. 
The measures contained within the reforms conflicted with the foundational traditions of the Catholic Church. They were the very definition of heretical. While the revolutionaries demanded power to the people, Scripture proclaimed power to the Pope. The revolutionaries themselves knew that these policies contradicted the core teachings of the Church, and as a result, posed risks for the Assembly. Mirabeau, in a private letter to Lamarck, openly acknowledged that the civil constitution could create significant discontent against the Assembly. But, despite the risks of picking a fight with the Church, the Assembly persisted anyway. In fact, far from seeking conciliation with the Church, it doubled down. On the 27th of November 1790, the Assembly passed a new law requiring all clergymen to swear an oath to the nation, to the law, and to the king. Furthermore, on the 4th of January 1791, the Assembly decreed that those who refused to swear allegiance to the Constitution would have their positions declared vacant. Priests who refused to comply would be removed from their pulpits and replaced by those who were willing to swear the oath. As a result, those priests who opposed the reforms were now faced with a stark choice. They could swear allegiance to revolution or to religion, but they could no longer swear allegiance to both. With so many priests resisting the reforms, the Assembly's ultimatum formed a permanent and irrevocable split between the Church and the State. Almost half of the nation's priests refused to swear the oath. Furthermore, 10% who did recanted once the Pope publicly condemned the measures. Only seven bishops of 135 took the oath, while roughly two-thirds of the Assembly's clerical deputies refused to comply with the Assembly's own law. In fact, a significant number of the Assembly's clerical deputies walked out and quit the legislature in protest. If the Assembly had not crossed the Rubicon with the nationalisation of church land, it most certainly had with the civil constitution of the clergy. The policies pursued by the revolutionaries throughout late 1789 and 1790 isolated, angered, and finally ostracised many of the clergymen who were initially staunch allies of the revolution. It wasn't just the conservative Abbe Marie who rallied against these proposals. The prominent revolutionary Abbe Siez also fought the assembly's actions, as did Beaujolais, the Archbishop of Aix. Beaujolais was originally a strong supporter of the new regime, but as the assembly progressed with its controversial reforms, the Archbishop became increasingly isolated by the revolution. As a member of the National Assembly, the respected prelate asked on the 14th of April if the Assembly sought to strike the ministers of the altar with the sword. He spoke for many when he asked the question. The Archbishop of Aix is not alone in his condemnation of the behaviour of the Assembly. Some historians, unlike Jonathan Israel and Francois Mignot, are not so keen to class the actions of the Assembly as inevitable or to excuse the aggressive measures the Assembly adopted. Historian Charles Hazen lists the consequences these actions had, and describes the pursuit of the civil constitution of the clergy as the revolution's single greatest mistake. The most fatal were the consequences. One was that it made the position of Louis XVI, a sincere Catholic, far more difficult and exposed him to the charge of being an enemy of the revolution if he hesitated in his support of measures which he could not and did not approve. Another was that it provoked in various sections, notably in Vendée, the most passionate civil war France had ever known. Multitudes of the lower clergy, who had favoured and greatly helped the revolution so far, now turned against it for conscience sake. We cannot trace in detail this lamentable chapter of history. Suffice is to say that the Constituent Assembly made no greater nor more pernicious mistake. The Church had, as the issue proved, immense spiritual influence over the peasants, the vast bulk of the population. Henceforth, there was a divided allegiance. Allegiance to the state, allegiance to the Church. Men had to make an agonising choice. The small, counter-revolutionary party of the nobles, hitherto a staff of officers without an army, 
was now reinforced by thousands and millions of recruits prepared to face any sacrifices. And worldly intriguers could draw on this fund of piety for purposes that were anything but pious. The heat generated by politics is sufficient. There was no need of increasing the temperature by adding the heat of religious controversy, French Revolution or eternal damnation. Such was the hard choice placed before the devout. A hard choice indeed. The church and the nation were now bitterly divided. Support for the church and support for the revolution were now mutually exclusive things. The clergy would have to choose. The people would have to choose. The king would have to choose. Contemporaries debated whether or not the measures against the church were justified, were moral, were legal, were necessary, were wise. It has since been debated by historians whether or not the civil constitution of the clergy was the result of an inevitable conflict with the church, or instead an avoidable mistake that should never have been made. Whatever one believes, the ambiguity surrounding these debates does not obscure the most important fact. The revolutionaries had declared war on the Catholic Church. The coming conflict would be biblical. Thank you for listening to episode 19, A Holy War Begins. Next week, we'll be covering how the assembly enraged the nobility and how a particular noble was sneakily betraying the people and working for the crown. This will round out the mess the revolutionaries created in 1790 and allow us to focus on the actions of the king. For the time is fast approaching where Louis would have to make some very important decisions. Now, before you go, if you're enjoying grey history and you're looking for ways in which you can help the cause of exploring history's ambiguities, then there are a few ways you can help. One is by leaving a review if your podcast app has a review feature. Another is by supporting grey history on Patreon. You can find us on either patreon.com or use the link on our website. Donating a dollar or two per show helps much more than you may think, and I greatly appreciate any and all support. Finally, as always, if you've enjoyed the show, please do spread the word. Now, if you have any questions or queries, please send them through, either through the Facebook page or greyhistory.com. Thank you for listening, stay safe, and have a great day. From iHeart Podcast, Supreme, the battle for Roe, tells the story of the unlikely champions behind the landmark case Roe v. Wade, starring Maya Hawke as 26-year-old lead attorney Sarah Weddington. We're challenging the Texas abortion laws in federal court. And Academy Award nominee William H. Macy as Supreme Court Justice Harry Blackman. Time is not the most important factor. Getting it right is. Listen to the podcast Supreme, the battle for Roe on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Want to know the secret to making amazing home-cooked meals? It's your cookware. Hi, I'm Jake. I founded Made in Cookware because I believe home cooks like you deserve to enjoy professional quality kitchen tools at honest prices. Our cookware has thousands of five-star reviews and was chosen by Chef Grant Ackett to outfit the kitchen of Alinea, Chicago's only Michelin three-star restaurant. We're so confident you'll love our cookware that we offer free shipping, free returns, and a 45-day risk-free trial. Upgrade your kitchen today at madeincookware.com. That's M-A-D-E-I-N cookware.com.